Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Everybody, I'm welcoming Monique Fairchild back to the podcast today for some more cooperative care talk. Monique, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here today. So Monique and I always have a hard time kind of deciding what to talk about because we could talk about a gazillion different things. And we're going to start today by talking about the difference between and maybe bridging the gap between your training sessions and your actual veterinary visits. Because we love to promote training for the vet. We also recognize that there are differences and a really common problem that I hear and you probably do too is my dog can do all of this stuff. And then as soon as we're in the vet, all bets are off. Absolutely. hundred percent. I hear it every day. (laughs) I'm sure you do. So talk about it a little bit. Why is this so, why is this so hard? Well, it's because it's training, right? So how many times do your students say, oh man, my dog knows how to weave, but then we went to a trial and not so much with the weaving or, oh, my dog has this awesome dog walk performance. And then we go to a trial and it falls apart. Or my dog knows how to walk on a loose leash, beautiful until there's a dog across the street. So anytime we're training a skill, there's so much context that layers over our training and when we don't plan for all those different contexts the dog is just not prepared they don't have all the information and experience that they need to be successful at that level of arousal or in a place that has that kind of learning history maybe attached to it if they have a history of having more difficult visits in the past and we can build that stuff into our training plan if we want to be smart and do good training we can build it in it can be part of the plan from the very beginning okay so i'm hearing people thinking and saying the vet with the vet outfit and the vet smells and the slippery table and the actual pokes of needles isn't something that I can involve or is it? So talk a little bit about that. How are we adding these really challenging layers to our training? Well, that was a lot of layers in one short list. I got to (laughs) say, just skip to the 600 elements, Monique. Can you please go through the meat? I I can. We're going to just break them down a little bit smaller. (laughs) So let's talk about the things that are easy to fix first, because you mentioned a couple things there that are actually easy. Uh, Slippery table is one that you mentioned that's very easy to fix. And that's something that we can fix on our own by bringing something with us from home that is familiar to the dog that is not slippery. It's a chunk of yoga mat. It's your training bath mat. It's your dog's favorite bed. It's whatever it is. But we can solve that one. Okay. Uh, Smells. We can actually solve that if we can work together with our veterinary team a little bit. One of the packages that I send home with my cooperative care training clients. So I do consults where people come into the vet, we do a training session, and then I send them home with stuff. And one of the things that I send them home with is a towel or blanket that smells like the vet's office. So it's been in the cabinet in the exam room. It has all of the awesome odors on it. I handle it with my hands before I send them home. So it also smells like a stranger. And I have found that that's actually really useful to them. There is a common medication that we use to give them orally before they have vet visits if they're super stressed. And I will coat a syringe with like a micro drop of that 
and put a cap on it and send it home and they can train the odor of that. They can train, they can work with the odor of alcohol in the room. They can work anything that might smell funny. We can provide that at home and we can build that into our training process. So those are easy things because that's just stuff, right? Like you just need items. (laughs) You just need stuff. And love that you mentioned that you can solve the slick floor, slick surface issue yourself. I've been doing that a long time. I've been doing that a long time in a lot of different contexts and not just the vet. Like dogs really, really struggle with slick surfaces in general. And when they're needing to function in a room with slick surfaces, it is nice of us to just solve that problem for them and not have them have to deal with it. One of those, one of those human things that we don't think about, that we don't think about how hard that is on them, that that's such a common thing in our lives. So let's talk about the painful stuff. Can we talk about the people stuff first? Sure. Yes. Is that okay? Because like the people one for me, Monique, I would actually love to talk about the people one because I have to tell you, that's the harder one for me to replicate because I'm training alone. And the pain stuff, I have some tips from you, some tips from some other people that I utilize to make that not as big of a deal. But yes, what are we doing about the fact that there's people? So it depends a little bit on the people you're working with. It depends a little bit on your vet team because some vet teams will have the ability for you to actually come and do a training session in the exam room and they may even have a member of the vet staff that's available to just be a warm body that's present in the room but doesn't interact at all on the first visit. And then we can set up a series of progressive training visits where that person becomes more and more interactive. So that's like one thing. That's like the, you know, pie in the sky, like there are rainbows and unicorns and we have a veterinary team that fully supports our ability to train through that. I put that out there because it does exist. And also, if you're a relatively sophisticated trainer, and you have an interested vet team that just doesn't know how to do it, but knows how to follow instructions, which I think represents probably a lot of your listeners are sophisticated trainers, but the vet team just doesn't know what to do. As long as they can follow instructions, and you're good at giving instructions, you can actually teach your vet team how to do some of this. And it's going to help them help a lot of other people and pets besides just your own. So don't be afraid to have that conversation and actually utilize that resource. Also be prepared that you probably may need to spend a little bit of money in exchange for their time. (laughs) Also pay them for the use of their space. I mean, you're probably going to pay an exam fee. That's fine. Like, I mean, that's to be expected. Expect to pay them money to use their space. And especially if there's a staff member helping you, expect to be paying for that staff member's time. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I mean, if I'm going to go for an agility arena rental, like I pay for that, you know, I think it's fair to expect that for sure. Barring access to the amazing thing that I just described, then there's the rest of us. (laughs) And it's like you say, you train so much by yourself. If we can consider for our own individual dog, what is it about the extra people that makes them nervous? And can we split it? Because for some of them, it's that the person is a stranger. For some of them, it's that the person is close to them. For some of them, it's that there's this feeling of like social pressure and invasive touching and like everything is cool with the second person until the second person needs to touch them. Sometimes the second person is okay as long as they're not holding something in their hand. And then when they're holding something, that's the thing that makes it not okay. So our first step in solving the people problem is actually trying to analyze and figure out What are the specific splits of the second person scenario that are bugging my dog? We got to go smaller (laughs) because 
Like, the vet, capital V, is too big of a lump. <laughs> it's too big. We can't solve the vet. But we can solve stranger. We can solve two people in one room, oftentimes, just by enlisting the help of friends. Like, dog people oftentimes have dog people friends. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you have, do- you have dog people friends? Person. I do think more and more... Our friends are on the internet and like Zoom is not going to work for this. But yes, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Zoom, will, Zoom will not work for this. That to be said, we have this difficulty where we as trainers, myself included, get into these little patterns. And even we do it on purpose, we call them loops. And the tidier the loop is, the happier we all are. And we have this wonderful sense of predictability that we set up in these interactions. And when we set up a training loop, which is go get your treat, come to your mat, here I am, I'm going to touch you. I'm going to touch you for 1.5 seconds. I'm going to mark, I'm going to toss your reset treat. You're going to get reinforced. You're going to come back to your mat. And we set up this beautiful training loop. And we get in these habits where we do the same thing over and over and over and over again. The difficulty with that is it doesn't leave any room for change or unpredictability. And really, if I have to choose one category that I think is the most common split that trips up teams and dogs, it's the unpredictability piece. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't know what's going to happen next. And we kind of set ourselves up for that if we are not paying attention to it on the front end. So from the very beginning, when we're training, can I think about Differences in duration, differences in location, differences in how much pressure I am using when I touch my dog. Am I on the dog's left, the dog's right? Are we face to face? Am I behind the dog? What am I holding in my hands? Is it my phone? Is it a spoon? Is it the TV remote? Is it a brush? What is it? And can I build an unpredictability into my training scenario? So I like to teach both. I teach the nice, beautiful, predictable, tidy loops that we all love that give us warm fuzzies that we feel great about. But then I also intentionally build in things that seem different or weird. Yeah. And I break them down to whatever level the dog needs them to be broken down to. And what starts to happen is we get this sort of resilience that we build into the animal through the training process. And they start to get more and more okay with things that are weird or different. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes that generalizes really well to situations where there's something new and different. It happens that it's a second person, but it can be really helpful. Now, if we have a dog that in general is mistrustful of strangers, that's a separate thing that we need to work on, right? If all strangers are off the table, not just the the capital V vet, we want to approach that as a whole, from a holistic standpoint and not just from the vet standpoint. Because I think it's important. And I want to know if you agree with this, like when I'm training and I'm building that resilience, I like to kind of tweak one element at a time. I don't like, I'm very mindful of stacking difficulty. And if we're aware of the fact that like a stranger is really difficult, that's kind of, that's the dial then that is cranked up if there's an unfamiliar person here. And I'm not wanting to crank up other dials then until that dial doesn't feel so cranked. Or even just, I think people like I, you know, top of mind for me, I have a puppy is when I'm exposing her to new stuff, recognizing that new stuff itself is challenging. Like I think people make it harder because they're like, the clock is ticking and the dog has to experience so many things. And in reality, it's like the overwhelming olfactory experience of this like store we just walked into is one thing. The slick floors in the store is another thing. So then no, you don't also need every single staff member to come over and interact with your puppy. Like it's recognize what dials are cranked up and don't just crank them all full blast. 
I could not agree more with you. So the, I completely agree. What happens, uh, I'm a music person. So in my brain, like you have your dials for me, it's the mixing board. Mm -hmm. And so it's a series of sliders that go up and down. And yeah. I really only try to move one slider at a time. Otherwise my mix gets super blown out and my ears are bleeding, right? So <laughs> because I don't like it when my eardrums are bleeding and my dog doesn't like that either, probably for them, like they're, when their emotions are, totally overwhelming it's my job to put together a good mix for them if i'm turning up like you say if i have the slider turned up on novel people then i'm going to need to turn down the slider on novel handling so if i am going into a situation where i'm like okay i have this training set up i have 30 minutes i'm gonna add a second person that second person is probably going to sit in a chair and ignore my dog while i do tidy loops that are easy if I, if I go to the vet's office or my training space or my agility space, and we'll talk about that in a second, but if I'm going somewhere and I'm doing a training setup and the situation is a little bit easier for them, then I might turn up my difficulty of skills that I'm asking them for. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to develop readiness. Like you say, they're going to become progressively more and more ready through this resilience plan that you have to gradually introduce them to things that they can do and that they can tolerate until they get more and more and more comfortable. Yeah. And so again, yes, if, if novel humans is a big thing you have, you do, there isn't a way around it other than involving novel humans, but a way that you can kind of turn those dials down is having your friends help you before you're trying to, you know, rent the vet stuff to have them. Help you. I know with Felix, who's kind of my biggest struggle in, in this kind of work, it's always like the first step is, can I do it? And then the second step is like, can this trusted human he knows do it? Then we're talking about like maybe some other trusted humans, but who we haven't done any of this training with yet. And then we're starting to talk about the vet. And like for him, getting exposure to his vet outside of the vet office has been helpful to us. I know her and we both trial and agility. So like that's, you know, obviously not everybody has access to that, but like He's actually gotten a lot more comfortable just with the fact that like he's around her all the time and she's not always trying to touch him. In fact, she doesn't want to touch him. So it's perfect. So he, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it makes sense. So, oh no. No. And then he went with me to, for the puppy's vaccine visit and he just was in the exam room and she just fed him some cookies out of the cookie jar and then we left and like that's all that happened for him and like i don't think he would have even taken food from her before he had like all of this exposure and i'm not so that's not a training plan going in and eating food from the vet's not a training plan but it was just kind of a thing that happened so i do think yeah the mixing board turning turning these sliders this way and the, these this way and like making that really good mix for your dog that's such a such a brilliant way of thinking about it and looking at it. So any any other things like about people that we want to talk about? I mean, yes and no. <laughs> Shall we, we go on and on, I'm sure. Like we, we could go on and on forever. But so I have a dovetail that's people plus place, which really? is we need to add split. So we talked about like working at home and we're gonna talk a little bit more about working at home in a second, but we talked about working at home and we talked about working at the vet, but there's a whole bunch of other places that people probably go with their dogs, yep. like for a walk or to the park, or like you said, to the pet yep. store or wherever, to agility class, to obedience, try to wherever you're going, normalizing body handling and vet skills into all of the places that your dog is comfortable in their life 
and all of the different places they visit is one of the most important things that you can do that's easy. Yeah. I'm always telling people like (laughs) stop on your decompression walk and look at all four feet before you actually need to pull something out of a foot. (laughs) Absolutely. A really normal thing, but you're just going to stop sometimes and look at their feet and look in their ears and look in their mouth. And then when it's time to actually pull a thorn out of a toe or whatever, they're like, oh, yeah, this is just part of walking. For sure. And also it decreases. So that helps with familiarity and it helps with the ease of them being able to do it. But it also gives you this really nice protection against a single trial learning event about having your foot handled when you're on a walk is only when it's painful. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about that, because I think that's a really, really important gem that I want people to <laughs> Oh, you, you like that one? <laughs> when they listen to this podcast, they're not going to remember everything we said. And if we just leave that right now, they might not remember it. So talk about that a little bit more. For sure. So tiny bit of background that just might help people with perspective. Like my regular day job, I work as a veterinary technician specialist in a general practice. So I'm a, my specialty is in behavior, but I see lots of clients on referral who have animals that are already afraid of going to the vet or already afraid of having their nails clipped or already afraid of having their hair brushed or whatever it is. And what happens with these guys is they may be exposed to something for the first time, like an injection, or like they tore a toenail, or whatever it is. And that first experience is their only experience with that event. And they develop a strong, sudden aversion to it. And then we have to dig ourselves out of a hole with a reconditioning retraining plan, starting with an animal who's already afraid. Instead, in my ideal world, in Monique's ideal world, where everyone follows her instructions all the time, because I have control issues, uh, (laughs) we scaffold for body handling in times where it is not unpleasant, because there's nothing that I can do to make a needle not be a needle. It's going to hurt. There's nothing that I can do to make a torn toenail not be painful or even a toenail that I cut too short by accident, which like spoiler alert, if you are doing toenail care at an appropriate interval, you 100% will at some point make a toenail too short, like guaranteed it will happen or you're not, not doing enough. I want to scaffold lots of neutral to positive experiences as the baseline so that then if there's one that has this extra pinch or one that has an extra sting here and there, that is not my animal's only learning reference for what that handling picture looks like. Because if that's their primary reference point, I'm going to be in trouble. It's going to be really hard. It's going to make my job so much more difficult. When I have to go back and retrain and try to rebuild that trust and rebuild that baseline of comfort, if I'm coming from a place where they have a single trial learning event that was traumatic for them. And what we're always trying to do with whether it is teaching cooperative care or body handling type stuff, or whether it is socialization, or whether it is entering your dog in agility trials, we're trying to build a history where everything goes fine for them because it is protective against what you're talking about. It is protective against those one trial learning events that destroy kind of the rest of it. So it's the same as anything else. Like if, if I have a long history with you showing up on time for these podcasts, which I like, this is only second time, but like I, the history is good, but let's say we've recorded like a million times and like, you're always here. 
you're always on time for appointments. Like then, or like I'm coming to see you in your clinic and you're always on time. Then my history with you is that you're on time. So the one time that you're late because something happened, it's like, no big deal. That's not damaging to this relationship. For sure. For sure. I tell my clients, I want their dogs to believe that life is like a bowl of berries. So like blackberries is one of my favorite foods mm-hmm. on the planet. Mm-hmm. And when you get a when you get a bowl of blackberries and you're super excited and you're eating them and you're like, oh my God, this is so good. This is so good. This is so good. I'm so happy right now. And you like pop it in your mouth and then you get one that's like a little bit tart and you're like, ugh. And yeah. like your mouth kind of, you're like, whew. Yeah. yeah. But then I reach right back in the bowl. And you go right back in because it's... I, Blackberry. Because I have, because, and I have such a strong history that almost always it's totally fine. Yeah. Or like if you try a food you've never had before and it makes you sick, you're never going to eat it again. Oh. If you eat, if you eat something every single day for months and months and months and like it's great for you. And then one time you have an illness attached to it or, or whatever, you probably are going to go back to eating it. It's kind of, you know, we talk about children actually have a stronger food aversion than than adults do like it's easy for a kid to take a bite of something and go that's not for me never again and the reason is they have no history like their history is too short they haven't been eating that thing long enough to know that and i think that where i want to the piece i want to pull apart because i want to ask you the hard hitting questions Moni, is <laughs> It's cool. You have a puppy. So we're going there next. Keep talking. Keep talking, Sarah. Keep talking. Can't the dog and doesn't it happen where you build this beautiful history, but the pokes and the bad stuff does always happen in one context. And so they pull apart that context. They still have that negative event, that, that one trial negative event, or maybe even it's two or three, but like it's, it is always this context. And you poison that specific context, even though the rest of it is fine. Like, talk about that a little bit, because I think it's very nuanced and complicated. And I know there's not like an answer to it. So just talk about it a little bit, because it's a, it's a thing. Dog training Mad Libs. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Yeah. It depends to a great deal on the individual dog, to be perfectly honest with you, is my personal experience after working with lots of clients and lots of animals. Some animals seem to have a very strong predilection for extreme responses I mean, in general. Okay, Monique and I are both Border Collie people, okay? So jokes on us. Like, when you think about Border Collies, I think about... The dog that is like, "Mm, yes, over here, that will be perfectly fine. But I know that in here, it is not perfectly fine. And so, and I'm, and, you know, bless them. They're probably still trying their best, but they're really nervous. And then you or I can tell that they're really nervous. And then it's just a snowball situation. So, yes. So, yes, I think part of it depends on the individual dog. And there's only going to be, like, we can't go in and rearrange the genome. We already know we can't do that. Or we at least shouldn't do that even if we think we can weird crazy netflix people um (laughs) that being said if we are doing a good job we actually can oftentimes protect against that contextual learning by making sure that in that specific context that's not the only learning that happens so 
if I am at home and I'm practicing my skills and I'm super fancy and I have this like sexy, awesome chin rest that I can do anything to the dog and life is great. And I go to the vet and the only time I ask for a chin rest is when they're going to get an injection. That's not going to take very long, right? Instead, if I'm going to the vet and I've decided, oh, I'm going to use chin rest for this, guess what? I'm going to use chin rest for getting cookies. I'm going to use chin rest for saying hello. I'm going to use chin rest for access to being able to chase a food scatter. I'm going to use chin rest for me petting the dog. I want to take care to be really aware of what it is that I'm going to ask the animal to do surrounding something like an injection. And I'm going to make sure that injections are not the only time I ask the animal to do those behaviors in that location because I want to protect against this effect you're talking about. I, for sure. I love it. And and yeah, specifically when you're talking about those trained behaviors, having those varied outcomes. I mean, we could talk about that in a bunch of different contexts, like sport training too. Like I have a friend who's a marine mammal trainer who handles animals that are being seen by the vet that certainly cannot be actually restrained. They are either fully sedated or they are fully cooperating in what's going on. And these animals need to get really frequent blood draws to monitor their health. And she told me something really interesting, and I would love to hear you talk about it a little bit, which is that for her specifically with the animals under her care, so this is something she practices these routines with these animals all week long. That when the vet staff is present, she's just still practicing the routine. It looks the same, except that the vet staff is present now. When she's practicing the routine, she does fake pokes with things, right? As we talk about. And she has a rule that when the vet staff is present, she doesn't do any fake pokes. The vet team will always poke you for real. And she doesn't have any degradation when the vet team is present. She certainly says like, she's like, of course, I see that the stress level in the animal is slightly different, but she doesn't have any variation in her behavior. And in fact, she's the only member of the team that does it that way. And the other members with the, it's, she's the only one in control of the animals that she's in control of. And then they have their other animals. And she says that her animals are the best ones with, with the vet staff that they are kind of really clear about what's going to happen. I'm not sure how to form like a perfect question around this, but I would love to hear your thoughts about it because what you're saying is sometimes you're going to do a chin rest and nothing's going to happen to you. And sometimes you're going to do this and that. Do you have your vet staff do fake, do trial pokes, fake pokes? Like this is something I've certainly done. Like I've had the real poke sandwiched by like fake pokes on either end before. Like I've had, you're going to put, okay, it's fake one, fake one. Real, and I'm literally telling the vet, real one, they do it, do a fake one, do a fake, and I'm just rewarding each time. And then, and then we end and like, that's a way that I've done it in the past. And so I was curious about her lived experience with some really terrifying animals that are not as scary as my dogs. And I would love to hear if you have, I'm sure that you have much to say about it. So let's hear it. I always have much to say about everything. That's mm-hmm. one of my predictability traits. Um, so... We have this thing where, and I have really mixed feelings about it because I do it too sometimes because it sounds sexy and it like gets people interested and they want to participate. And I'm like, well, if you can draw blood from a hyena, then you should be able to draw blood from a dog. Like where we use, where we use collection animals as like an example of how we should do cooperative care or like what good training actually looks like or this type of thing. And it's a little bit false for me 
and the reasons why, because I have actually given an embarrassing amount of thought to this, <laughs> collection animals have a really unique lifestyle and they have a very unique relationship with their trainer and with all of the other people who they encounter. Collection animals always have a safe situation when they are encountering people when they are in their space in general. Uh, it, if we're talking about collection animals in the U.S. Now, we're not going to talk about other places that, where regulations are different about how people can interact with the animals who are in a collection. When I say collection, I mean zoo and aquarium. When we have these animals that are in collection situation, they get trained multiple times a day by the same people in the same environment. And when they have things like vet care, that's oftentimes in the same environment in which they live and in which they train all the time. So the slider about where you are is down. The slider about who is present is down. The slider about what is your reinforcement that's available is down. The slider about how many reps you have to do is down. The only slider that's turned up in this scenario is there are strangers here. And very predictably, when these people show up, when the vet staff shows up, and those animals are smart, they know who the vet staff are, right? This oh, yeah, is I what's mean, going to occur. Different. They're wearing different equipment. They, yes, they're, they're a hundred and it's the same vet stuff every single day. It's the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you have on staff vets, but also that's important too. It's the same vet staff every time. And the veterinary staff also has a very different relationship with keepers and curators generally than a veterinary team has with a client. They are working closely together all the time. They're checking in on the training plan all the time. And everybody has an option to consent or opt out. And there's no pressure generally, unless the animal is sick. And if the animal is sick, they're going to be doing a totally different thing that's not their trained behaviors usually anyway. If it's like most collections that I've had the privilege of working with, like sick animals is a separate thing. But they have the luxury of if it doesn't go well, they're like, oh, no big deal. We'll do it again in a couple of days. And I have 10 feeding training sessions in between where I can bolster yeah, this behavior if the, I need to. The luxury of, you know, being able to stick to like a one stick type rule or even two. Yeah. My, my friend has a rule that it's twice. Like if you, you can try it twice. But if you don't get it on the second try, you're not doing it again until the next rotation. Totally. And while that would be really wonderful for us to have in a setting with our veterinary teams, that's just not reality. There are major accessibility problems with that. Time is a problem. Money is a problem. It's, it's difficult to stick to that in a pet training situation. So... That's my, like, I have absolutely zero doubt of your friend's life experience and have had similar experiences talking to other people who work with collection animals, but I just think it's kind of apples and oranges a little bit in my experience. I actually, <laughs> this always happens. I almost feel as though I'd like an entire conversation because you do have experience with collection animals in the differences because... We do love to say, right, if you can do it with a hyena, you can do it with a dog. Like, we love that. And in truth, it is apples to oranges. It is not the same thing. And do I think both worlds can learn from each other? Yes. Do I appreciate having those conversations with my friends who work in zoos or aquariums? Yes. And also, I'm so thrilled to hear you say it's apples to oranges because that's how I've been feeling about it is that it's actually just not the same thing. And I wish we talked more candidly about that because I think instead it's just become like really sexy to be like, look, my dog is trained as perfectly as the giraffe or like whatever. And <laughs> in reality, 
does your dog have a dedicated trainer who works with them five times a day, every single day (laughs) for a large amount of their ration? Is that their, is that one of their primary modes of enrichment? Like, it's just not fair. It's just not the same thing. And my dogs do so many things for food for me too. Like they, they do a lot of stuff. Whereas that's going to be the primary amount of training that those animals are getting. In the case of my friend, those animals are being trained for other things. And so they're getting a lot of other kinds of training. But like, as you said, this is not a, like, she doesn't go on a hike in the woods with her sea lion and then like pull it over and scratch its head and look at each of its words of the anatomy of the sea lion are. Um, I'm like, fins, flippers, what are we talking about? I think feet. Did we just say feet? I don't know. Whatever. I know that the skeleton looks very hand-like, which is creepy, but it is apples to oranges. The specific scenario of the dog should get to know that this is going to hurt this time. Like, comment on that a little bit, because I think, and that's kind of where she's coming from, is that the sea lion knows this is the one that hurts. But the sea lion is also has a gazillion other these ones don't hurt reps so talk talk to that a little bit should they know that it's gonna hurt or is it better if they don't it depends (laughs) i knew it i I mean come on it depends a little bit on the dog i ask the animal what they want to do and then i let them tell me through experience what seems like it's going to be best for them and this is a pretty nuanced thing like we're pretty far down the rabbit hole talking about this specific topic but when I am training, so I do a lot of training with client animals. So the client an- client comes in, client animal comes in, I do some virtual coaching with them in advance. So they have some basic skills. So I'm not using time teaching like how here's what a mat is, right? I don't want to necessarily use clinic time for that. But I do a lot of situations where they come in and I do a lot of the training and handling and their job is just to feed the animal when I tell them to. <laughs> and the reason that I do that, and I encourage people to do this at home as a separate aside, but if you are the person who is going to take your dog to the vet, have your friend be the person who's doing the handling and you're doing the feeding, because that is a big swap that impacts the realness of vet visits super hard. Whether you are the person who is feeding or not is a major clue about what is going to happen next. Mm-hmm. So I have my client come in, they are in charge of food, I am in charge of handling, and I will experiment with predictor cues. And I will see when I am using, so I use training needles a lot, which is a blunt cannula, you can buy them online, you can make your own on my YouTube, there's a video about what they are, and it fully explains training needles if people need more background on that. But I use them and I use a variety of pressure, a variety of location and a variety of sensation with a training needle, which is the absolute closest thing that I can get to an actual painful stimulus. And I compare how does the animal respond if I do practice, practice, real one, practice, practice, the sandwich you were talking about Mm -hmm. versus how do they respond if I verbally let them know what's going to happen. And then I do my stimulus at the same time that I give a marker that predicts reinforcement. I try to let the animal tell me and usually they'll tell me pretty readily by how still they are, how comfortable they look in their face, what's their overall expression, what's their overall demeanor. And many of them, you will see, you do your couple practice ones, and you'll feel them relax under your hands because they're ready and they know what's going to happen. And some of them, you'll do a couple practice ones and you'll feel them under your hands, they get more tense. Mm-hmm. And you see the the eyes get just a tiny bit more tight because they're like ramping up because they've been, ex- usually it's because they've been exposed to that before. Mm-hmm. The practice ones predict pain. For those guys, I don't do the practice sandwich. I do the, I'm going to tell you what it is and then I'm just going to do it. I try to ask them, is my answer yeah. to your question. Yeah. 
I experiment with both and let, and let the animal tell me. The other thing is that if I have animals that are really, really, really averse to injections, I teach owners how to actually inject their animal and I include real injections in the training plan. You do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we'll give real injections or real needle sticks to animals as part of my training plan. If it is the type of animal who is apparently completely fine with everything except the real actual needle. What that tells me, like they're telling me I need more splits. If you want me to do this, I need to actually learn how to do the specific skill of a needle. I do not do that for every client and like, don't send hate mail. Okay, you guys, I don't do this for every single client and patient, but I think it's worth talking about that. I do believe there are some patients, some pets who actually need that experience as part of their training plan. Sure. I actually understand that. I think that a knee jerk, Ooh, no, I would never do that kind of feeling that people might have about it. Like, first of all, that's fine. Everybody can make their own choices. But second of all, it is always about how are we going to get to the goal with this individual? It doesn't matter what we're talking about. How are we going to get to the goal with this individual is always the first question that the first, last and middle question, like those, that's what you're asking all the time. And you might be getting there with doing actual training injections because the, the number of times a year your dog needs a true and actual injection is actually not that many times. It's a tiny number of times. It's more if, you know, certainly there are reasons that there could be more needed, but if you you have a young, healthy animal, it's very, very few times. And I could see then where those single events can become really highlighted for them if they're extremely averse to that exact stimulus, creating a huge problem. Yeah. And I mean, those animals are in a minority that have that, but it's just, it's one more tool in the extremely giant toolbox that I lug around all the time with me. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. So there's another piece that I think we can segue into, which is that restraint actually is necessary sometimes in your actual vet setting. And I do think that everybody kind of always wants like restraint free, like restraint free this, restraint free that. And they think that that's like the golden ticket and like you've achieved, you've arrived at like cooperative care land. I don't know if you, if you can do that stuff when in reality, there's just going to be times when the dog needs to be held. And one of my primary focuses in the training with my own dogs is just increasing their comfort with that because I can't prepare them for everything. And if they're not, prepared to hold a position, I need to hold that position for them. So let's talk about restraint a little bit. Totally agree. I, there will be different people who have different opinions about this, but I really in my deep core of myself believe that teaching animals to be restrained in the positions that are taught in veterinary school and technician school is a core skill of cooperative veterinary care. And my job as an owner of an animal, my job as somebody who lives with these animals and loves them and needs to protect them to the extent that I can, as well as as a veterinary professional, is to prepare them as well as I can for all the things that life is going to throw at them, right? And one of the things that life is going to throw at them is periodically you get held still. And you may or may not want to be held still, but there will be times where you will be held still. And it's okay to train that. 
when I am training restraint, it depends a little bit on the animal. So, you know, there's some puppies that you just like throw a harness on them and then they just run around in their harness and it's like no big deal. And you get this yeah. little habituation scenario. And there's some puppies that you show them a harness and then we go into a like multi-week or month training plan about how the puppy can't wear anything, right? The same thing is true for restraint. There are some animals where you introduce them to to this and you're like, I'm going to lightly restrain you and feed you some cheese and that's all you have to do and you're done teaching it. Mm -hmm. And there are some animals where we really need to introduce a lot of careful, well thought out foundation behaviors for them to be able to do restraint. When I am starting with a puppy and you know, you have a tiny puppy, my puppy is 14 months old now, but when I am starting my own puppies and client puppies, I do one test one where I check out and see, are you just the dog that I can put my hands on and stuff some cheese in your mouth and we're good? Because if you are, that's where I start practicing because I am the world's laziest dog trainer and I do not want to do a billion splits that are totally unnecessary to my life. I do not have time for that. Okay. No. You're like, nope. So I check and see, can I just do this? And if that's the case, then that's my baseline. And when I'm practicing restraint, literally it is just, I am gently holding you still while feeding you food for being stationary. Nothing super terrible happens. I turn you loose. You go play. Life is good. If I do that, and I see in that animal signs of aversion, they lean away, they get wiggly, they're looking away, comma space escalation from there. We all know what escalation looks like. All of your listeners understand that. Then I'm going to start introducing a training plan very early with a lot of splits in it about restraint. And for different animals, the aspects of restraint that bother them is going to vary by individual. But the most common ones that I see are space. So being in a tight space, a lot of animals who are objectionable are also the ones that don't naturally go into small or tight spaces. Like mm -hmm. if they need to go through a gate that's only open a little bit, they like walk up and then they look and then they like run through it really fast. Like, whew, I lived. <laughs> and just that tight feeling of being in a narrow area can be bothersome to them or like they will always walk the long way around the coffee table instead of walking between the coffee table and the couch. 100% of the time, because they yeah. do not feel comfortable in that small space. Okay. So how big the space is seems to be something that a lot of animals are sensitive to. The second thing is the feeling of social pressure. We're border collie people. We understand about dogs that have giant bubbles of personal space about which they have big, big feelings. <laughs> I need to respect those feelings, but I also need to do what I can to massage that bubble and have the animal be comfortable with a person being in their personal physical space that they feel socially belongs to them, they need to learn how to share their personal space. And I need to be aware of that and give them some skills for how to share their personal space in a way that is predictable for them. Neutral is sometimes the best you can hope for on this. They might not learn to love it, but if at least I can get them to feel neutral about it rather than it being aversive to them. I would strongly prefer that. And then the last thing is feelings of lack of control. So the ones that they don't mind tight spaces and they don't mind if they're like right up next to you and they have no worries about personal space, but Shiva Inu, I'm looking at you. Okay. <laughs> but when you actually snug down a tiny bit and they feel like they cannot escape, all things have to do with immediate escape right now. I have to go. I have yeah. to go right now. This is like the human being who is totally fine in the elevator until the door closes and then they have to leave right now. Yeah. It's not the elevator, it's that the elevator is closed. Yes. It's not the arms on the animal, it's that they can't get away from the arms of the animal. And that feeling of inescapability can be really upsetting. So 
I have a whole bunch of little foundation games that I do with these dogs to try and prepare them for those different three, those three different aspects that seem to be the ones that come up over and over and over again in patients, uh, the sort of common themes. So you're saying that just holding on to the puppy until it stops is not what you do. I am saying, well, okay. I'm almost, I'm almost 100% saying that. I'm, I'm not even necessarily being sarcastic because first of all, I also try it like you do. Uh-huh. And when I get the puppy, I try it. And then I see like, who are you? Are you, are you worried about this? Are you not worried about this? And then that kind of, yes, informs next steps. <laughs> now we know who you are. Speaking up. And she's been great. My only dog so far that Straight up panicked upon first restraint was Felix. And I am like good with a little bit of squirming. And I'm really careful to lean on the fact that like negative reinforcement is probably working here. And so when you stop and you let me like, I love to just hold you and cut one nail and let you go when you're still like, this is like a big thing that I do. And you might go that way if we're not freaking out about it. And then if we are freaking out about it, we're going to lay some other foundation pieces in. Yeah. Yes. So this is where it's tough when you're like talking to the dog people over the internet, because it's so Mm -hmm. easy for things to get heard, but maybe not fully understood. So I'm going to do my very best to be ultra clear about my feelings on this. There is a difference And if you carefully observe your puppy, you're going to be able to detect this difference between a little bit of minor annoyance and a strong aversion or panic that sets them up for a future disaster. And we have to be sensitive to those small differences and respond accordingly. Creating is a terrific example of this with your happy creating stuff, like a teeny bit of whimpering or whining or a little bit of fussing in the crate that does not seem like it is overall impacting the animal's welfare is okay. It's not only okay, but is normal. Yes. But trying to be understood and not only heard is, it's a big deal. And I struggled with the creating piece because I said, don't let them cry it out. And that got translated to the second they make them let them out. Yeah. If they're in the crate and they're panicking, well, obviously there's our massive welfare issue there. Right. And we need to address it. We need to address it rapidly because panic is really bad for the, developing brain and we want to avoid panic particularly in young animals because it is bad for them (laughs) okay but we also need to help them develop life skills that occasionally in life things will occur that are maybe not 100% to your taste but it will be safe and it will be brief and it will be okay and I'm here with you and we're going to get through it together and it's not that big a deal it's a judgment call Mm -hmm. and we have I have to trust people to remember to be observant and to have good judgment. If I am holding a puppy, and like you, the example you give is one toenail. The example I usually like to use is brushing, because I feel like mm-hmm. a lot more people take care of their dog's coats than take care of their dog's toenails. So I feel like sometimes brushing is a little bit more approachable as an example. If I'm doing brushing and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I have the puppy in my lap, I have my brush, I'm just gonna put my hand on the puppy and hold them in my lap. So I hold them still, I'm doing a couple strokes and I might feel a little bit of wiggling or they might turn around and look at what the brush is. And if I just pause my hands for a second, do I feel them relax? I do, then I'm gonna again do a couple more brush strokes and then I'm gonna turn them loose. If I have that scenario and they are doing a little bit of wiggling, a little bit of looking around, if I let go right then, what am I doing? 
if we think about it from a functional perspective, I am taking the time to teach my puppy that if you are experiencing minor annoyance and you wiggle, that's a super effective strategy to make the thing stop. If my puppy is not experiencing a great deal of distress, that may not be a lesson that I want them to learn. Right. Hate mail, come at me. My email, no, you can send it directly to me. <laughs> and I had a whole conversation actually on the podcast with Shade Whitesell about this, that she actually really deliberately teaches her dogs to kind of give up when she's holding on to them. That's the way to make this not happen anymore. And it's not that she's not like using other types of positive reinforcement and, and whatever else, but she has these working line German shepherds that are only, you know, a handleable size for five seconds. And then if they don't know when a person is holding me, I should relax by that point. It's really, really tough to get back to the same, the same place. And I do think it's kind of, there's this fine line between, I would like this to be not a terrible experience for you. And also I acknowledge that it's probably not your favorite thing in the world. And so therefore I need to recognize that there's a functional reinforcer at play, which is that this is stopping now, whether I'm using food as well or not, that's probably true. And I should strategically end it when it makes sense to end it as far as like what your behavior looks like. Yes. And like the reason I'm approaching it with so much caution is because Mm -hmm. if we have a dog that we attempt a procedure like this, where we're doing something like I'm going to hold you still for a second and wait for you to relax so that then I can do what I need to do and let you go. If I read the amount of distress that they're experiencing wrong, that's a safety problem and a welfare problem. So that conceivably sets up a big welfare problem for the animal. And it potentially sets up a safety problem for me as the owner or trainer, but also, and also other people who might need to handle my animal later. Because what I could be teaching that animal in that moment is subtle communication is ineffective. So please escalate to the thing that works. Growling, biting, frantic escape attempts, all of the things that an animal might do to explain that they are in distress. And I don't want the animal to think that I have on earmuffs, right? Like I want them to understand that I can accept their communication. And so if we are doing procedures like that, it needs to be done in a way that makes a ton of sense. And I guess I would say if somebody is interested in doing stuff like that, and they're not quite sure how, ask somebody who knows to help you. Get on Zoom, talk to your friends who are trainers, talk to your friends who have dogs that are really easy to handle and be like, wow, how did you do that? Can you help me? Like get eyes on if you are not 100% sure and confident, because I don't want you to end up with the animal that is like, I do a tiny wiggle and it's very effective. So nobody can ever grieve me for my whole life. Or... I did things that were really nonviolent and super appropriate and they got ignored. So now I have to bite everybody who comes near me at the vet, you know, those are the risks you're running. And it's the same with the crating that if you're not sure if this is an okay amount of fussiness, it's true. Like you are running a risk of creating a really strong distress association with this space that you need to use. And it's not worth that risk. And so getting help is really important and getting another set of eyes on it is really important. And if you're not sure and you don't have help, just err on the side of I need to build this behavior from the ground up and just presume that you have an animal. It's never wrong to assume that your animal is going to be averse to restraint and just build it from the f- 
foundation up as right. a series of behaviors that you do in like a stress-free or an error-free way. I just mentioned that I do the test first because like I said, if I have something that's already easy, I'm going to do the easy thing first. Oh, yeah. If I can skip approximations, I'm skipping the part. Like if I can climb up to step five and not do something, I'm, I'm... And also border collie people, like if I have something that is like almost a completed behavior and it is easy and I go and insert a whole bunch of unnecessary approximations I may unbuild my completed situation I'll ruin it like I'll ruin the thing that I have that's good and I've done that before and it's super annoying totally Totally. you do ruin it I mean it doesn't matter if you're talking about your weevils or your cooperative care like you if you start lower than where they already are, you absolutely run the risk of teaching them things that you didn't mean to teach them for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I heard you have a new puppy and you're taking it to the vet. I did. I took her yesterday, actually. Oh, she um, went. She Can we, already- are you okay talking about how it went? Sure, let's talk about it. She actually did fantastic. I'm really happy with how she did. She likes people. So that helps. <laughs> I had all of my dogs with me. Raya, my Icelandic, also had to get vaccines. And then it was just too hot for my other, my adult border collies to be in the car and they can always come in and be in the vet and not have anything bad happen to them. So they also came in. And so she had the whole family there. And I think that also helps. But she honestly, she was just really squirmy. That's <laughs> 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 really, we just don't have a stillness situation um, happening for us yet. But I think it's important to note that like she doesn't know anything yet. I have done a little bit of restraint with her. So I restrained her and she had one vaccine and barely noticed it. In fact, I say barely because I can't imagine she didn't notice it, but I didn't notice her noticing it. And it was overshadowed, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) It's overshadowed by a lot of other stuff going on. Exactly. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And I, the only part that I would say she actively disliked was having her teeth and bite looked at. And so that's information for me. Fine. I have plenty of time to build that. She doesn't need to, you know, she's not going to be, <laughs> she's not going to be in the confirmation ring anytime soon. So nobody needs to <laughs> look at her bite. <laughs> So I, and I know how to build that and I will build that. But essentially it was about be on the table. A few things happened here and then here's some food and back on the ground. And it was a really good first puppy experience at the vet because I don't think that she, I don't think that she made any negative associations, but she certainly doesn't know anything. And I don't think that she like, you know, had a big learning experience I think that people really expect that like I had already trained the chin rest and she's laying on the table and being perfect and like none of that is true so anyway what do you want to ask me about it well I it's more like I just love hearing people talk about what their experience was like and then saying a little bit about what I heard from you when you were talking because the way that you describe that you're like I don't think anything terrible happened like she had a vaccine but it didn't seem like it was horrible and it tells me so much about how even those of us who do this for a living are worried about that. So the stress I had leading up to this appointment. Also, my vet thinks I'm ridiculous. Shout out. She'll listen to this. And (laughs) 
Because I kind of am, but I'm also kind of traumatized, to be honest. I've worked through really serious problems before. And I would say that Felix is very much a work in progress on his really serious problems. And honestly, sedation is the best thing that's ever happened to him as far as veterinary care goes. And Rhea, this is the first time that Rhea's had vaccines with me present because she was born in 2020 and I had to hand her over and just whatever. And I, I don't like how she looked yesterday. She's a really lovely dog and she's the kind of dog that it'd be very easy to just exploit her good nature when it comes to this stuff. But I don't like what she looked like. She was pretty stressed, pretty stiff. She had visible pain responses to both vaccines. And so I have some work to do with her. The puppy looks fine. The puppy's going back in four weeks to get a booster. And I'll be working, you know, towards how I'd like that to look over the next month. And we'll kind of see how that looks. And I'm going to do a easy visit with Rhea when we go and see how, see if I can access some of her skills. But I am totally worried about it. I, it, it really, this stuff really stresses me out a lot because of the history that I have. I also have medical trauma myself. So I think that there's like a lot of that woven into my stress when it comes to this. And so it is really, really hard for me. Like this is a tough area for me for sure. Well, and like kudos to you just now, because I totally like did not tell Sarah in advance. I was going to ask her this. This is all off the cuff. And I'm like, here, let's just like throw you off the cliff. Right. (laughs) Just vulnerability. Here you go. Welcome. But point being like, thank you for being such a good example because professionals who do this all the time, like we're anxious too. We worry about this stuff too. And one of the things that I ask my clients to do when they come in for visits or whether it's a training visit, whether it's a real visit, whether it's happy visit is I want them to just like I would in any other training scenario, look at how many reps, not necessarily with specific behavior, but how many interactions were there? How did you feel about all of them and not just the ones with needles? Mm-hmm. How did that balance out for you? And do you want to change the balance next time? Like, is there anything that you want to change from that time to the next time? But to just encourage a more global awareness of the entire visit consciously, rather than being like, all the stuff that went fine, whew, like, that was great. But there's this one tiny little, like, scab that I need to rip off of my arm 800 times in a row so that I can continue to suffer about the fact that my dog thought the vaccine was painful. So let's, like, put a laser focus on that and get super weird and creepy and try to train it 100 times at home so that my dog is extra worried about vaccines. And then when I go back to the vet and I have this tenuous training project that I've been working on because everyone was really upset about it and it breaks down because we're at the vet it's so easy to get demoralized really quickly. And so thank you for saying what you saw at your puppy visit, because it really reflected what I hear from a lot of clients who go to the vet. And I think we can do some framing just like we do in so many other situations about how we think about that visit. You know, what's so funny is that this is how I talk about everything is just, it's just a pendulum. Which side did it swing? Do we need the how, what do we need to do to swing it the other direction? Did it look the way you want it to look? Okay. What parts did? Great. What parts didn't? What are we going to do to help them look closer to what you want them to look like? It's and, how do I, and how do I keep the parts that I liked looking the way I liked? Yes. How do I support those parts? Like, okay, if I've got 
you know, she's walking in with wiggly body and friendly, sociable body language towards everybody. Love that. How do we keep that? She was also able to do like a relaxed down with all the four of the other dogs while we waited. Love that. She really just offered it. I didn't expect her to. We worked on it like a tiny bit and she offered it. And I was like, fascinating. Um, She got it. The scale was no big deal. She like, all, there were so many parts of it that were really easier for her than waiting for me to finish this recording right now. And then, yeah, most of it was just, she's wiggly. She's not sure. I actually, they do have like a mat on the table, but it was slicker than I want it to be. So that's something that can be remedied that I will bring a piece of yoga mat next time. And we can work on using the yoga mat at home in the meantime. All training is always, what does it look like right now? What do you want it to look like? How are we going to move that dial towards that? How are we going to swing that pendulum the, the direction you need it to swing? And thinking of vet visits that way, it's hard for me, obviously. But It's not just to- you. I think it's hard for everyone. It is. It's hard for us. It's not. It's not just you. It's really not. Yeah, it's really stressful. Like it's, it's stressful to see your dog be stressed. It's stressful to have them experience a painful procedure. Like it's just, it, it's hard. And one of the best gifts that you gave me was just because I really feel strongly that sedation should be used in more cases than than not. And like not more cases, like that's not what I meant to say. In more cases than it is used. And you totally supported that. And we did that for Felix on his last trip. And I mean, it was game changing. And I actually think it has hope to get us closer to doing more things without it. So it is hard for everybody. And it's, I think kind of people just go, okay, that was over. And now I don't have to do it again for another six months. And they just don't think about it. But instead, like if we look at it with the lens of how do I want it to look the next time I have to go in, getting it to look more like that. For sure. Well, and like, I'm so glad that that was helpful for you, for Felix and helpful to him to have some help for his veterinary visit through sedation. I mean, I can't tell you how many clients I have come in who have previous trauma from other, either other locations or other procedures that got done. And we're in this place where we're recovering from something that's really difficult or they, that's just their, you know, nature and demeanor and they don't have the skills, whatever it is. And they are terribly averse to handling and these clients come in and they are so anxious and worried about what's going to happen. And we talk about sedation. We talk about, I'm going to give some medication that is like analgesia for emotions, right? I'm going to stop the emotional pain. I'm going to prevent physical pain. I'm going to prevent memory consolidation. I'm going to make it so that they can't remember all the things that got done while they had these medications on board. And we encourage owners to stay with their pets while we do that. And over and over and over and over, what I hear from the pet owner is, That is the best veterinary visit I have ever had. Like I was worried about sedating my dog, but they're like teary about it because they're like, this was so, it doesn't have to be that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it doesn't mean you're a bad trainer and it doesn't mean you're a bad dog owner. And it doesn't even mean you're lazy. We do whatever that animal needs on that day. And if what they need is to have some meds, just do it. It's fine. Just do it. All right, Moni. Your puppy is so cute. It's been a fabulous conversation. And now that the puppy has joined the chat, we're going to wrap it up because she says she needs to do stuff now, please. 
<laughs> she's such a border collie. Like border collie people think she's so adorable and other people are like, what is it? What is that? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> is that a lab mix? What is that thing? <laughs> They're like, why is it that color? What is it? Why, why is it a chihuahua in a lab? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> is, it a, is it park greyhound? <laughs> yes, yes. I, everybody, th- everybody thinks Quill is a um, border whippet right now because he's yeah. very... He's a Very leggy and, and oh, correct. That's right. Yes. <laughs> all right, Monique, um, let everybody know where they can find you. Uh, you can find me all kinds of places. You can find me on social media like Facebook, and I am actively soliciting YouTube subscribers right now, which and both of those are at Teaching Animals. Uh, you can get me by email, which is Monique at teachinganimals.com, and you can get me through my website, which is teachinganimals.com. Uh, you can schedule consults, you can ask questions, all that stuff. And I will be more than happy to answer them to the extent that I possibly can. (laughs) Wonderful. I will link all of that. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.